going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode number 205, and I had an over-the-internet, because that's how everything is done these days, conversation with Donovan Freeberg. Uh, you may know him, you may recognize him as the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica kid from the 80s. Uh, he's done tons of voiceover work, and he's an actor, a photographer. Uh, he is the son of the late Stan Freeberg, who was a very famous advertising guy, won tons of Cleos and Grammys. I mean, he's won all sorts of awards. Stan and uh, producer wife Donna uh, raised Donovan in an eccentric home that was fun and crazy and fascinating. And Donovan was raised up around famous folks that were, you know, not famous to him, just family. He's got some great stories to tell. And uh, Donovan and I have been friends for a little while, but it feels like a really long time. He's just one of those kinds of people. So uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. I want to bring up two charities, feedingamerica.org and redcross.org. Feeding America, of course, is there to help feed America, especially in times of crises. Uh, they're a really wonderful, vetted organization, so definitely check them out. And as far as Red Cross goes, uh, blood, plasma, this kinds of things, uh, the Red Cross is hurting. Uh, there's The blood banks are low, and they really, really need us to step up and donate. If you have the ability, if you're well and can do it, please do. Um, it saves a life, and that's a good thing. Okay, social media stuff. Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. Susan Ruthism is my personal social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find me at SusanRuth.com. Don't forget the links page on HeyHumanPodcast.com. I curate the list every single week for every single episode, and this one is no exception. We talk about a lot of different things, and I tried to get some really cool stuff up there. So definitely check it out, including I put Donovan's Encyclopedia Britannica commercial on the links page. So you want to see that. It's, it's fun. You can email me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for thanks for being. How about that? Thanks for just being. Because these days, sometimes it feels hard to just be. And that's good enough, you know? So let's get into this. And here we go. Hi. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good. Yeah. What's new in your world of social distancing? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. There's nothing new. I've decided that new is, uh, there's nothing new. Everybody I talk to is like, what's new? I'm like, what do you mean what's new? Nothing's new. We're, we're, yeah, nothing, nothing is new. I have a friend on Facebook that was like, we're all in Las Vegas because, I don't know, you, you've been to Vegas, right? Yes. Sorry, I'm just adjusting okay. mics while you talk, so this is really good. No, it's fine. I'm ho- I'm hoping that we don't have to do this podcast all with my face on it. Is that okay? What do you mean? I'm glad, although I'm really glad to see your face. No, I, I it's good to, I like to be able to look at the person I'm talking to, but I don't record the video, just the audio. Oh, okay. It's just that I don't have my, like, I don't want to have to hold my phone up the whole time. It's a little bit easier for me to do it just audio, but I don't mind. Oh. I don't mind. Yeah. 
prop it up is on a book a... or something. Yeah, I guess so. What will I do? Hold on. I just feel I, I for is me this, for me at least. Is this okay? Oh, totally fine. Okay. Yeah, for me at least, it's um, I just it's a it's a more of a communion, you know, to be able to look at you. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. So I prefer to be inside of a coffin and just talk to people through like a communicator. A little and, hole in the coffin. Yeah, a hole like a straw. Is there a nightlight in the coffin? Yeah. Snacks. Yeah. I got it all in there. What what kind of I, snacks would be in your coffin? Um, well, right now it's like sort of a beggars can't be choosers situation with the, uh, you know. So I'm just going to go with what I'm eating a lot of, which is uh, like what a seven-year-old eats. So it's like peanut butter and jelly, uh, cheese, apple slices, you know, celery slices with peanut butter, like crackers. Do you do the an- ants on the log with raisins or no raisins? Oh, that's a good idea. Remember? No, I haven't thought of anything enjoyable or fun during this period. This is a time for me to really embrace uh, being morose as opposed to normal life, which is just me being morose. morose. This is <laughs> Yeah, this is morose with a magnifying glass on it. This is morose with snacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you, have Pretty you, much. Have you done it? I, like, I'm four pounds into the COVID-19 pounds. <laughs> no, I don't play that game. I grew up in the 80s in Beverly Hills, so everybody was like talking about their weight all the time and their aerobics and shit. And now, for me, I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. But they don't talk about their cocaine? It's the 80s. You know what's crazy? <laughs> but is this all part of the podcast? This part, too? God, I hope so. <laughs> I do, too. Um... It's funny, I was just talking about Jason Bateman. Oh, I love to, to, Jason uh, Bateman. To my girlfriend. Yeah, um, anyway, I won't I won't throw up Jace, Jason under the bus, but he and I went to high school together. And uh, I just started watching Ozark, which I really like, but oh, Bateman and I, I'm going to call him Bateman. Yeah. I have this running gag um, uh, that I have a bunch of nemesis, like, but they're all secretly friends. I'm like, he's my nemesis. But I mean, that's Bateman a good is, one. He's good looking, yeah. smart, funny. I'd make him a nemesis any day. Exactly. Right? He's my nemesis because it's uh, he's good-looking, smart, and funny, and, and successful and rich. The only thing that he's missing, uh, that I'm missing, is the successful and rich part. Yes. Well, you can't have everything. You can't fit it all in your coffin. Jason, like me, has no humility, so, you know, that's why we're nemesis. I do enjoy his interviews. He cracks me up. I, I he like would him. be a person that I think I would very much enjoy just shooting the shit with. You should you should have him on your podcast. Oh, he seems like you. Wonderful. I would love that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. He owes me $40 and I'll just leave that there and uh I'm using that. I'm going to You know I'm, what? Uh <laughs> I'm going to go all Sopranos on his ass like, "Listen, you owe Donovan Yeah, exactly. 40 bucks think, and uh Yep. Yep. It was for uh I can't disclose what it was for, but gas? Uh, was it gas uh, money? No. No, it was far more interesting than that. Far more interesting. Imagine craziest thing you can imagine and then layer on top of it yeah Boy, i have a really good imagination so it's getting yeah. wild in here already it was for distribution of um material that was not supposed to be distributed Sweet. at school it, not drugs at though. school not drugs <gasps> although he was a cocaine person and he mm-hmm. uh got cleaned up and he had to do like those tv ads for like you know drug free america or whatever with like robert evans i think he was part of that deal Robert Evans and, if, and Drug yeah. Free America. That seems counterintuitive, yeah. but that's okay. 
Oh, you should watch the Robert Evans documentary if you I haven't. did, and it's fantastic. Right? And he did, like, the, the, the dr- drug... Just say no to drugs or whatever the hell it is, and they're all, like, baked out. They're so out high. Yeah. They're high as fuck. So my my dear friend John was very good friends with uh, Robert Evans and uh, yeah. had some fantastic stories. Yeah, so here's what's weird is that um, I never really did drugs. I didn't even smoke pot. What? Till I was in my early 20s, because I growing up around it, I think you either like gravitate towards it, like, you know, uh, you know, towards like bugs it to a light or you just sort of think, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. And it scared me so much. I was always a hypochondriac like I am now and had severe OCD. And so I was so afraid of dying from drugs. And I saw actual, you know, I had friends OD. Totally. And die. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not doing that. And then weed, I always thought, this just doesn't appeal to me. And I had a really good experience the first time I smoked weed. So, but I'm not, I've never even become like a really heavy pot smoker. I did never drugs really in did high drugs. school. I really, I was really yeah. into it for about two years. And, uh, and yeah. I just sort of, I would say right. boredom. It became boring to me. And that was that. That's cool. That's how I feel about it as an adult. Like, the only thing I've really done is smoked weed, and I did it for a while with a with a girlfriend I was with for a while. That was she was she was you know she wake and baker on the weekend, and I was like, all right, I'll try this. Like I'm up for trying anything. Do you see so that? Play- sh- oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. The Playboy behind you. Yeah. There, my grandfather had that Playboy, and my mother said that I found it when I was about four, and that I went into the um, the bedroom and pulled out black oh, socks. Out wow. of, out of uh, I guess my father's drawer or my grandfather. I don't. Okay. I guess my father's drawer, and okay. uh, and mimicked that and made her take my picture. I've never seen wow. the photograph, so I don't know if it's true. Okay. But what year is that? What which episode is that? Playboy. You know, it's funny we're talking about Playboy because I'm 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 going to bring that into the conversation, but th- I don't know. Oh. Um, what this is behind me is. Um, my friend Sarah, her mother is an amazing travel photographer and she takes photographs when she travels and then, um, puts them on canvas. So this is somewhere in Russia Hmm. and, uh, that playbook, I just love the way it looks. It's just cool looking. It looks like a painting, but it's not. And her her work is, yeah, her work is really cool. Her name is Lisa Ross. She's, she's rad. Yeah. She's not doing much traveling right now. No, just in her mind. Travels in the mind. Yes, the yes. VR of the brain. All right, so let's start the podcast, shall we? Oh, great! <laughs> now, now. <laughs> yeah. Donovan Freeberg, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a long time coming, and it took a uh, quarantine and and a global pandemic to get me on the show. I, I think I don't know if that says more about you or me, really. It says everything about me and my level of narcissism, probably. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I, I, I adore re- you, though. I, I adore, adore you, too. Pod- I just want to say, I love you, and I love your podcast, and I love your brand, and your whole just energy and spirit is so beautiful, and it's a light, and it's really needed during this time. Thank you, love. Thank you. I adore you, yeah. too, and that means a lot to me. I appreciate it. It's an it. honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> <laughs> with <Right>. you <laughs> it's an honor to be in quarantine with you separate but apart even though you can't share your snacks that's yeah. fine 
Right. I want to read something that is on your blog because it made Please me chuckle. Okay. Okay. It said, my childhood was a Wonka-infused cross between the Osbournes and the Royal Tannenbaums as seen through the eyes of Tim Burton, David Lynch, and Woody Allen. I didn't get the name Donovan till I was five years old, and Santa Claus named me in July. Let's yes. start with your childhood, shall we? Sure. <laughs> you are a child of California, born and raised. Born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I'm a second generation native Californian on my daddy's side. Um, uh, and dad was born in Pasadena. Uh, my mom was from Chicago and grew up a lot in the South in Louisiana, spent a lot of time traveling around before she came out to California, but pretty much also a native California because she was pretty much hunkered down here from like 20 on. So 20 yeah. years old. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. So she considered herself, you know, she'd watch Chicago Cubs on TV and she was the only sports fan in the family. But yeah, she would, she would, she was, she had some Chicago pride and, and some Southern pride. But, but uh, my dad was a true native California and I think I am. And I your parents are both in the business to a yes. high degree, in fact. Very high degree, yes. Let's, yep. let's spit out their accolades real quick just to get a foundation. Sure. Sure. So, um, so my father's name is Stan Freeberg. He was uh, a. He started off his career as a voiceover artist. Um, he was in over two hundred Warner Brothers cartoons. Um, he started in the business by saying to his parents, "I think today I'm going to go break into Hollywood." <laughs> and uh, my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister. Uh, and kind of strict but open-minded said okay you know let's uh let's pray about it so they prayed to jesus that my father would get into the business and uh my father got in a bus in pasadena and said let me off in the middle of hollywood and the bus driver looked at him like he was nuts and said okay kid and they literally dropped him off uh at hollywood and vine my dad got out of the bus got went to the tallest building he could find and saw Stars of Tomorrow, which was a talent agency. Um, it probably, who knows? This has got to be after, my dad was in the end of World War II, so this has got to be right after World War II. So he gets off the bus, does this, goes up there, and they ask him, um, what, what's your talent? What do you do? Like, or, do you do magic? Do you do vaudeville? Like, this is old, right? So he says, I do voices. So it's very much like that scene in Mrs. Doubtfire where she's like, what do you mean you do voices? And he's like, he does all these crazy voices. And then they're like, huh, there's this place called Warner Brothers that's doing cartoons that might be interested in, you know, we'll see if you can get you an audition. And so uh, my dad goes to Warner Brothers and they ask them if they can do voices and, and, uh, they say, can you do a spider monkey? And my father says, I'm an expert in doing a spider monkey, but I have laryngitis. And so I have to come back tomorrow. And they're like, uh, okay. So he, of course, has no idea what a spider monkey sounds like. He runs to the zoo, sleeps, spends the night on the ground in a tent at the zoo and listens to the spider monkey all night long, goes back and nails the spider monkey. And Chuck Jones and uh, Frizz Freeling, who are like legends in the business, come out and say, you know, well, you're hired. So they got him one job and then he like proceeded to another. And anyway, that's a long way of getting to the fact that 
he then went into uh, doing puppets and inspired Jim Henson, and uh, he's the only person in advertising to uh, have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, and he's won 21 Clios, the Cannes Film Festival, um, a Grammy, an Emmy, two Emmys. He's almost, uh, what do they call it when you want an Oscar? The EGOT. Yeah, he's almost an EGOT. He also named the Grammy, um, which is interesting. Um, he was one of the founding members of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. And they asked him, they asked everybody, what should we call this thing? You know, we're going to call this a word. And my father said, I don't know. And somebody wanted to call it the Eddie after Edison. And at the time, Eddie Fisher, which is a later, that, that plays into my family too. But anyway, Eddie Fisher, they want to call it the Eddie. And my dad was like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be named after Eddie Fisher. People think it's going to be named after Eddie Fisher. He's the biggest recording artist right now. And nobody's going to think of it as Edison. Why don't we name it after the gramophone, the Grammy? And so they voted. And next thing you know, um, it was named the Grammy. Legend. Yeah. So that, that, like, stories like that abound. Like, that, that's just like, people are like, wow, that's this one story. No, no, no. There's like, there's so many stories that we could do 12 podcasts about them. And I may do my own podcast at some point because people are always like, when are you going to write the book? Anyway, and my mom and dad met because my mom was Frank Sinatra's assistant. And, um, Oh my that's gosh, its, that's amazing! Yeah, yeah, that's its that's its own crazy story, and um, which I'll briefly tell. Which is that my mom, they said, oh, my mom was a secretary at CBS, and then became uh, like a color model for television because they had just come out with color TV. And Mr. Sinatra saw my mom and basically said that he wanted her. So my mom was a tough, you know, Chicago dame, and said, "What? What for? What does he want me? You know." And so they said, well, I don't know. Mr. Frank Sinatra wants a meeting with you. And she said, all right, well, no funny business. So she goes to meet with Frank and they hit it off. And he says, would you like to be my secretary? And she says, first of all, you have to pay me more than I'm being paid as a color model. And second of all, yes. Third of all, I'm never going to go to bed with you, Mr. Sinatra, even though I think that you are a good looking guy and obviously a playboy and so on. And he says, okay, you're not going to sleep with me. And she says, never. And uh, <laughs> my mom was a real beauty. My, Frank Sinatra called her a hell on high heels. Anyway, she, he says, is that a promise? You're really not going to sleep with me. Is that, you promise? And she said, yeah, it's a promise. And so he said, you're hired. And then that's basically the beginning of my mom's career. And then my dad was doing a puppet on the Frank Sinatra TV show and met my dad there and they were married shortly thereafter. That's a wonderful story. It's pretty nuts, yeah. So I grew up steeped in this world of, you know, 19... By the time I came along, 1970s and 80s Hollywood, and my parents were, you know, in the business. golden age, such an age. I mean, the totally. 50s through the 75s, yeah. I guess, you know? Yep, totally. I feel, you know, my sister is 15 years older than me, so when she was coming up you know she got to meet the Beatles with my dad my, got to meet uh my dad was on the monkeys got to hang out with all the monkeys and my my sister just knew everybody famous was best friends with like Dean Martin's kids and, and sister-in-law to Carrie Fisher and sister-in-law to Carrie Fisher that's a whole other side note like it's very one of the things about Hollywood that people I think know but don't know is that it's incestuous Absolutely. very <laughs> so much so I mean it's like it's such a small club and it used to be even smaller that 
everybody knows everybody who knows everybody. So, you know, eh, it's just the way it was. What was that like to be a, first of all, I, how is it you weren't named until you were five? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, <laughs> um, okay, so my mother had my sister 15 years before me, right? And by the time I came along, my mother was almost 40, like clocking around 39. Now, these days, it's not unheard of for a woman to have a baby at 40. Not at all. Um, it's still considered like, wow, you're, 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 you know, you have to be careful or whatnot, but it, it's nothing wrong with that. But back then in 1970, 70, mm-hmm. 71 didn't happen. And prior to my mother getting pregnant with me, she had had, um, an ovarian cyst and a big operation where things went south quickly. And the doctor said, look, I was able to save you save your reproductive organs and save just a tiny like moon sliver of an ovary which the chances of you getting pregnant off of that are nil so you can basically go off whatever birth control you're using don't worry about it at your age you know these sexist doctors and and so my mom says great that's terrific news because i don't want another kid so um (laughs) and then on the set of the most expensive television commercial ever made by my father, which was uh, with Ann Miller dancing on a soup can, my mother became violently ill and throwing up, and she's convinced that it's the potato salad. Anyway, doctor comes and says, when was your last period? And she says, I don't know, months ago. And he says, okay, and you've been nauseous when? And she said, every morning. And she, he goes, you look pretty good for food poisoning. You're, you're glowing. And she said, oh, shut up. You know, so. And then Ann Miller, who was in the commercial, said, honey, you're pregnant. You got a bun in the oven. And then next thing you know, she's in total denial the whole pregnancy that she's has has a baby. Like, she thinks it's, it's false pregnancy. She thinks it's hysterical pregnancy. She's convinced that she's gaining weight for no reason. She's, it's, it's crazy. I come out. And the doctor says, now do you believe me? Like with, with this infant. Now, they had listened to my heartbeat, evidently. This is before amniocentesis or ultrasound. And they said, oh, there's definitely a baby in there. And it's got a really fast heartbeat. And so girls tend to have faster heartbeats than boys. And you had a girl already. So likelihood of it being a girl is high. And they said, okay, great. We'll name her April. Because I was going to be named in April. I come out and... In April. In April, and I'm a boy, and they go, oh, God, we can't... What are we going to name this kid? And so it goes on. And my dad literally just... They call me baby for five years straight. And I don't think anything of it. In fact, now, when people pet name me baby or go, hey, baby, I, I turn around like... It's so cognitively part of my reality. Anyway, my sister at the time was dating Sean Cassidy. And Sean Cassidy's brother, David Cassidy, said, I can't stand this shit calling this baby, baby. It's, it's sick. So I, I'm going to call him something else. So my sister says, whatever, David. Like, go ahead. Like, you know, David was interesting. So he called me Damien. Uh, which is like such a weird name because it's like satanic, you know. And so... My mother comes along and says, I hear you calling the baby Damien. 
and and David's like, I'm so sorry, Mrs. F. That's what they call my mom. I'm so sorry, Mrs. F. Like, no disrespect, but it's just I can't I can't hang with the baby thing, man. It's too it's too weird, man. And um, and so she goes, Now you know what? It, it, it's not bad, but we got to revise it. So my dad and her settle on Donovan. Now this is the this is not even the 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 joke punchline but my sister's name is donna and my mother's name is donna so it took them five names to just extend five years to extend donovan and i get this we celebrated christmas all year long we kept the tree up all year long and there was stockings on hung by the fire and so every once in a while like on easter or fourth of july or whatnot you get a little like chocolate in your stocking or something fun you know and on birthdays, you would get like a little birthday present in your stocking. And so, would they be from Santa? This these random? Yes, okay. Every one of them. And so, and they'd be typed. My father would type them. Um, and so, because my father was Santa, so huh, I look and I go, "There's something in my stocking." You know, I'm five, and so. My dad goes, I know, there's something in your stocking. You should go take a look, you know? And there's a little step ladder to get me up there. And I go up and I open this little, I like pull this thing out of the stocking and it says, baby, uh, your new name is Donovan. Love, Santa. And so I was like, what is this? And he's like, it's your name. It's your name. Santa Claus named you finally. And I was like, huh. I have to think about this. I have to, I have to live with it. I have to, I have to try it on. And so my parents were really liberal and very cool. And they were like, all right, like, try it on. See what you think. We're going to call you Donovan. And it took me weeks to be able to respond to it. Cause people would call me Donovan. I'd be like, Oh, Oh yeah, that's my name. Okay. And so for a while they would call me like baby Donovan or Donovan baby. And then I kind of stuck and then, of course, school started, which that helped because my dad, I think, knew that I was already going to get bullied and Donovan was going to be a better choice than Baby, you know, and Donovan was a singer. A lot of people think I was named after Donovan the singer, which would be awesome because I love Donovan the singer. Um, he's one of my favorites, but I, I wasn't even aware of his music till I was in my teens. So, no. Was the fact that your sisters and your division in ages was so massive a big deal or did you take to each other? it's strange it's strange in a way um it made it easier for us because we didn't have a lot of sibling rivalry because the time by the time i was old enough to even like worry about stuff like you know having my own room or having you know whatever she had already gotten married uh but she was married to todd i think at like 19 so oh she got married young but that's yeah. the things people did that back then i guess yeah so by the time i was six years old she was out of the house, so we didn't fight that much. She was more like um, another mom, and she was super conservative back then and a born-again Christian. So it was it was like... That's like the Alex P. Keaton syndrome. Totally. She was Alex P. Keaton, who I love, but completely. So my mother would be like, like, I don't care if you... I found the Playboy in your room or the, or the you know, I, we, I found the cigarette in your room or whatever, like, and I'd be like, oh my God. And my mom would be like, eh... 
it's fine. You're a teenager. You're, you're experimenting. Just, it's cool, but don't tell your sister or like, you know, hide it from Donna. And so, um, it's still to this day, my sister, we get along great, but it's very clear that she had a very different upbringing than I did. Also, my, my parents were at the height of their fame, like Beatles fame at that level when she was growing up, like going to the Oscars, going to the Grammys, going to, and by the time I came along, my parents' career had kind of tanked. Not tanked, but just was like going down. And then my dad at that time decided, all right, I'm just going to retire basically and raise the baby. Which is great for me because I got to spend all my time with dad and mom. Yeah, and I read on part of the blog that you got a present every day? Yes, for waking up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a present. I mean, it's beyond spoiled. I tell people that I was ruined, which is true. And it started out as a good idea, kind of a cognitive behavioral, um, a cognitive behavioral, uh, reinforcement like gold stars right like if you do get an a you get you know a present or you get what you get the class whatever you know you get a you get a ribbon you get a prize and so i hated school more than anything in the world it was we won't even go there it was just horrible and so eventually they said listen if you go to school consecutively for five days in a row get your present but that didn't last so then it was just every day you make it to school, you'll get a present. And it wasn't anything like crazy. It could just be like a little balsa wood, 99 cent glider or like jacks or, you know, a eraser, whatever. What was it that you hated about school? Everything. Everything. Well, first of all, my parents didn't warn me what it was. I didn't really see other children. Uh, till till then, um, kids and are my, brutal. Yeah, and my mother and my father said to me, "Listen, son, tomorrow's going to be a bad day for you." And I was at first, I thought, "Oh God, I got to go get a booster shot," or you know, what's going on? Like, and the, and he said, "The government mind control program um, is going to basically induct you into this forced labor camp." of daily like ritual and every day you're going to have to go to this place and I'm already weeping right as a child I'm like crying and I was like can't you do something please and my mother was like we're trying everything we can with our lawyers to get you out of this mess but tomorrow begins this you know and it was so like badly my parents were great and 90% of what they did was perfect and 10% of what they did was like deeply damaging and and this was part of the 10% like to tell your child that they're about to go to a forced labor I mean my father was just like they're out to get us and they're going to program your mind and was he a conspiracy theorist was he or was he just being funny and you were too young to get it or you know my father wrote some commercials to help get us out of the Vietnam War to help uh, with the McGovern Hatfield Amendment where you can actually look it up on YouTube he was on the Dick Cavett show and during that time of the Dick Cavett show um, he actually got death threats Um, and when he was in Washington D.C. he was staying at the Watergate Hotel and he was one of the um 
people investigated by the Watergate burglars. Mm. And at one point, there was a kidnapping threat against me. There was, um, at one point, there was, my father basically knew that the government, Vietnam, all that stuff was dark shadow government shit. So my father, yes, was a heavy conspiracy theorist, and he was convinced that public school, and he's not wrong, public school began as a result of the Industrial Revolution to basically, you know, for factory workers. Well, I mean, that's like why it. we did the Pledge of Allegiance, which I don't know if that's still done, but um, school I ain't, did it. School yep. ain't what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Um, and I don't know that... The, the I mean, books, I, our I, textbooks and things growing up were heavily propagand- propagandized. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and for I sure. Mean, I didn't even know about like Howard Zinn or People's History of the United States or any of that kind of stuff. Or the internment so, camps and Japanese internment camps. I didn't know about that until I was in college. See, my father was teaching me that before I even went to school. My father was like, listen, <laughs> this is the real deal. No wonder you have anxiety issues. <laughs> and like we took some of our own people and put them in camps and you know, we dropped bombs and, you know, there's Nazis and they're still real and they still walk the streets. And we hired them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my dad was friends with like the Black Panthers. Like, oh, like cool. my dad was my dad was funny. Like he, he now it would sound racist, but like back then he he grew out his like white afro as big as he could get it. And he like. You know, he would walk in the streets and be like, power to the people, you know. And, like, my dad was just, like, a hip, kind of a strange, almost like a hippie, but not quite. Like, more of, like, a resistance fighter. And so he trained me from a young age. And by the time I got to school, they were like, oh, here we go. Doggy, kitty, you know, this is the apple. This is the train. It goes choo-choo. And I was like, okay, great, but what about Vietnam? What about all the boys dying over there? What about, you know, black people dying? What about slavery? What about, uh, the fact that our own country had a civil war and they're like, keep quiet over there, you know, (laughs) which, which only reinforced the fact that, and I would come home and say, they don't want me to talk about that. And he's like, of course they don't talk louder. So did you, did you have to take self-defense? My mother came with me to school for a few days to make sure everything was all right. And then my father would come to school and talk to bullies if there was a problem, things that would literally get a person arrested now. Like, I had a really bad bully that was actually physically beating on me. And um, my father came to school and said, listen, hey, we want to befriend you. Like, you can come over. We have a pool. We have Atari. Come hang out. You know, we have pizza. And would you like to be Donovan's friend? Like, this is a good choice for you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. He's like, well, I heard you're beating Donovan up. Like, can you guys be friends? And, and he was like, yeah. He's like, okay, this is the first conversation we're going to have about this. And you might change your mind. And if you change your mind, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a different man. Oh my God. And so like <laughs> my dad asked me for days, like, how's it going with that guy? And I was like, you know what? He's, he's, being pretty cool to me now like we're kind of friends and then one day this guy just decided i'm gonna bully him again and he hit me with a stick and like scratched my face open like like cut it and i got home and my dad was like what happened to your face and i was like um you know i fell and my dad's like i don't think you did did you and i started crying and i was like no that boy and he's like i'll take care of it And so the next day he comes to school and tells him, 
have you heard of the boogeyman? Do you know who that is? And he says, yeah, my mommy and daddy told me he wasn't real. And he said, they lied to you, son. They lied. I'm the boogeyman. And I steal children. And I put them in the trunk of my car and take them back to the house. And then I put them in an oven that has a, a glass front. And I can see their skin melt off of their face. And I sit there and I eat popcorn while I'm watching it. And I've, I've, I've only done this a few times, but I'd like to try it again. I have a taste for it. And if you touch my son again, I will take you home and I will burn you alive in my boogeyman oven. And this child, I, I never saw him again. He was like damaged or I don't know. I don't like he didn't. I don't even know what happened to him. All I know is like didn't go well. And my parent, my mother was like, Stan, what has happened? Like they had to go to. I don't think they went to court, but it was basically like a bad situation. Like he, <laughs> oh my God. He, he physically threatened the child. But it got out at school that my dad was a boogeyman for a while. And so I didn't get too much beatings after that. Because awesome. people thought it was crazy. And Man, the 70s, acting. huh? Get away with shit. <laughs> right? It's happened now. My dad, I mean, probably go to jail or you'd be sued for sure. In the 70s, parents just opened their doors and get the hell out of our house till the sun comes down. You know, yeah, kids totally. just sort of went and did their thing. And I mean, my parents were super overprotective, but I do remember like a lot of just like riding my bike and kind of like stranger things. Like, my walkie-talkies and hanging out with the neighborhood kids and playing in the pool and just not a whole lot of helicopter parenting going on. Although my parents were always watching. But yeah, I miss the 70s. I miss everything about the 70s. I feel like that era, it was so wonderfully dark and strange and I don't know, it was beautiful. So I'm a big fan of Carrie Fisher. Did you have a lot of experience sure. around that because she was your sister-in-law? Oh, God, yes. Of course. I mean, you know, it was Carrie. It was Carrie. A lot of people are fans of Carrie, and whew, I have a lot to say about Carrie, but I'll just say that she was one of the most brilliant and kind people ever. I don't think people and, even realize how how over-the-top smart she was. Oh. Carrie's level of intelligence was, and Todd's, both, that whole family, honestly, and Debbie Reynolds as well. I mean, but especially Todd and Carrie, something happened where they both became true, like Mensa geniuses. And Carrie, particularly in terms of just her wit and her sarcasm and her ability to like just see through all bullshit was amazing. And what was most amazing growing up is we would get these memos back from Carrie that she was making this terrible science fiction B-movie. And she was like, this movie is terrible. The director is an idiot. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Uh, you know, it, there's like people in, in bear costumes. Um, you know, we're, we're running around. And because back then, they, it was the beginning of green screen, right? So they didn't know what was going to come. The special effects weren't added in yet. So she's like, we're goofing around like we're in a bad Charlie Chaplin film, like with these like fake ropes and we're supposed to fight with a light sword. And like, this film is going to be shit. So, you know, if, if this thing actually releases for God's sake, just play it down. Don't talk about it. Just cause she was what, um, 19 or 20 when, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad to get a paycheck out of this, but like, 
you know, eh, 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 this is going to really be a stinker. And like, I remember my sister saying that like, I was there, like we were, I was very little, but we were, I was, we were watching this movie at Fox, like a trailer and, or a, a, a premiere. And it was, we had, she had no idea. It literally turned her overnight into, it was like a, some, a, a, you know, Princess Leia for God's sake. And it was nuts. I mean, we couldn't, it, it was difficult though, because we couldn't really go out with Carrie once it became very famous because people were like, oh my God, it's Princess Leia. Like, for some reason, I would go out with Sean Cassidy and people would freak out, or I'd go out with Debbie Boone or all the other 70s icons my sister hung out with, or Dean Martin, or, you know, and be like, oh, wow, oh, Dean Martin. But go out with Carrie and it's like, uh oh, big problem. And so, as a result of that, she really had to become kind of a shut in, you know? Mm. And I remember her house in Laurel Canyon and just. I didn't know much about drugs back then. I just knew that Carrie was sick. Carrie would go through episodes where she was sick or she was not up to speed. And Todd would be like, Carrie's, Carrie's, you know, she's sick. I do remember, though, that Carrie sent me the world's largest chocolate bar, which was a 10-pound chocolate bar from Girardelli Chocolate. And it was so good. And I remember I, I felt bad because I was like Augustus Gloop. And I like I was like the right at the peak of me being like chubby, uh, awkward stage and I ate this thing in like a month or something like pretty fast right it's a 10 pound chocolate bar and so I tell she carries like hey did you like the chocolate bar and I was like I loved it but it, it's over and she's like no problem and so like two days later I got two more oh my god <laughs> like Carrie's generosity her her level of just like what do you need honey and her just sardonic kind of wit. But it was very familiar because that's how my mother was. That's how Debbie Reynolds was. That's how a lot of those sort of crones. The Dorothy Parker kind of. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like. I'm so attracted to that archetype. I love yeah. it. It's just genius, witty, yep. smart ass, cutting, cocktail in the hand. Love it. Cigarette in the other. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Yeah, that's Carrie. And the anti-memes, the yeah. all that. Yeah, that's that's every woman that raised me. All of them. It was like I was raised by all anti-memes. How did that shape how you found your sexuality? Then I mean, that's a really specific, strong woman. Absolutely. Um, you know, to go back to school. So first week of school. I go and look at the boys and I was just like, okay, these guys are roughhousing. They are footballing. They are spitting and all kinds of other uncouth things. And I think at that point I, I had to decide like, do I want to, okay, do I want to go hang out with them? Right. And so keep in mind also that my sister's friends, they sort of treated me like the baby. I was always like in the, in the bed with like tickling and like they would paint my toenails and paint my fingernails and all this other stuff. And like, anyway, I, I, I would look over then at the girls and I'd be like, Oh look, they're over there. They're playing with their dollies. They're playing with their puffy stickers. They're playing with their glitter. Oh, they're baking a pie. Like, you know, this kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, I know which camp I'm in. 
I'm going to the girls. And I went over to the girls and was like, can I play with you guys? And so they were like, yeah. And that was actually the beginning of when uh, a lot of bullying stopped because the girls would protect me, just like my older sister. But this is how I know for a fact in my mind that if you are gay, I believe you are born that way. Because it just never occurred to me that I would be attracted to a, a boy. And, like, I can look at guys and be like, God, that guy's fucking hot. Holy shit. I mean, look at Kyle McLaughlin or, oh, my God, look at, uh, you know, whoever, Johnny Depp or uh, I could list a, a, a hundred guys that I think are hot. But from, like, day one, my sexuality has always been heterosexual. And I've thought about having sex with a guy but I, I, I kind of play I, everything that I think about. I think, OK, let me really imagine it from beginning to end and get it and really play it out in my mind. Here's how it's going to go. And then when I get to the end of the sex with a guy, I'm like, you know what? Just not my thing. And but I totally get it. And it's funny because my best friend in high school was gay. And my dad said to me. Son, you know, there's some uh, boys that like boys. And I was like, yeah, duh. And then he started to talk to me about how his best friend was getting married to a guy. And I was like, yeah, all right, that's cool. Like, of course he's getting married to a guy. His partner's a, a man. And she, he's like, but, but I, I want you to understand that if, if you like boys, that's okay. In fact, it's good. Like, Whatever you want to do is good. Whatever makes you happy. And I was like, sure, I get it. Like, I understand, but I, I like girls. And then it took me years to figure out, I think they thought I was in love with my best friend. And I was in love with them, but I just didn't have sex with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so now I've recently kind of found a new part of myself, which is that I'm polyamorous. And of course, this makes sense. Everyone I've talked to is like, oh, God, of course you are, Donovan. But um, my parents almost had like, and this is so taken aback when I tell people this, but my parents and my sister growing up and everyone around me almost kind of loved me in a romantic way. It's like an asexual romantic way. Like they couldn't have loved me more, like cuddles and touches and just everything, uh, you know, nothing sexual, but like. I don't know what, this is a tangent I'm on now. You've thrown me onto a tangent, but yeah, I, I'm comfortable in my sexuality, but I also know that one day I could wake up and be like, Hey, I'm bi or I'm gay and that's cool. But that day hasn't come yet. So that's fair. Yeah. I'm very fluid. Like I love, I love millennials and I love generation Z and I just, I think this generation finally is getting it right. Yeah, like, they're very, it's a very open and they just, if it feels good, groovy, <laughs> why put I, a name to it? <laughs> I felt like that since I was two. So sure. it doesn't even occur to me that that wouldn't be, like, I'm here to de-shame people. I, I feel like that's my goal in life. Like, sure. It's a good whatever, goal. Man. I like that goal. Yeah. If you got two grown-ups and they consent to something and they want to do it, or you got three grown-ups. People are, have their own... That people carry their own shame to such a severity that I feel like they don't need an outside influence shaming them. Yeah! For God's sake, we're all filled with shame, and, and it's normal. Shame is, like, an automatic part of us, and so, like, why... 
as they say in Buddhism, like why press the bruise, right? Like don't, don't second arrow yourself. There's also that term in Buddhism where they, the second arrow is the, is judging yourself that you got shot by the arrow. You know, it's like, okay, no, just take out the arrow. Don't second arrow yourself by judging why it happened. We're so judgmental. Mm. We, We live in a very judgmental. I believe this time, maybe not Corona time, but like <laughs> this specific time in history is, it's almost like we're living in another fifties. It's like, Jesus, we're being judgmental. But at the same time, we see younger culture coming out in a way that's shame free. It's going to be man, a very interesting next hundred years, but I'm glad I won't be around for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I am too. I mean, oof, it's exhausting enough. I've written a note down. Uh, Mrs. Clark's house. Oh, yeah. What is this about? Um, so the house behind my house, we lived in Beverly Hills in a big old mansion. And the house behind our house was abandoned. And Mrs. Clark was married to the guy that owned at the time the L.A. Rams, which was a big, uh, you know, uh, football team. Um, and she like died. Okay. And we would go into her house, break into this mansion at night with flashlights, me and my dad and our live in, um, security guard guy who became a worldwide like security expert. Anyway, we'd break into Mrs. Clark's house and bring back bags of loot to our house. Um, we basically looted the place. Every night. Oh my God, what? Yeah, so so the, my dad thought it was just terrible that like all this like art and tiles and doorknobs and chandeliers and whatever else you could get your hands on. They didn't have children or anything? They were just, no, okay. It was just one of those weird Beverly Hills mansions that was abandoned. And... It's we. My dad checked it out. I mean, it stayed abandoned for quite a long time, and so my dad checked into it. Like, is anybody there? Is anybody coming to get the stuff? And they, there was a demolition order. They were going to just bulldoze the place. And so my father would come home every night and go. I went and checked it out over there, and I don't think anybody's coming back for that stuff. We should go get it. And so <laughs> me and Dad and Todd and Gavin and whoever else like that my dad could rally would go over there. And one night the Breville's police showed up and said, put your hands up above your head. And my dad said, I, I, I'm sorry, sir, officer, I cannot do that. And, and he, and the, and nowadays he probably gets shot or, you know, if he was black, he'd probably have gotten shot then. But you know, they, there was the Beverly Hills police. So they said, okay, why can I, you, we, one more chance you've got to put your hands above your head. You understand me? I see something in your hands. What is that? And he goes, I've got a baby in my hands. It's my son. And so at this point, they kind of soften. And then Gavin, who is just a genius, says, like, I'm Gavin DeBecker. I'm a security expert. Like, Mr. Freeberg has a baby in his arms. Like, everybody's got their hands up. And somehow my father convinces this is at my dad's memorial that we talked about. Gavin talked about this. I don't know how. But somehow, not only did my dad not get arrested, he convinced the police police officers that he was doing a community service, and they helped us 
carry all the bags back to the house. Oh all cops. Now, wait, so was he really, was he holding a pretend baby or were you a baby at this time? I'm in his arms. Oh, so he means just like my kid, not, not a baby baby, but because you were old enough to remember or not? I don't remember a lot of it. I was probably four and a half. Okay, so he, but he's still calling you baby at this time. It's so good. Well, I wasn't named yet. I know. I was four and a half. I know. So they're, they're shining this flashlight. I remember the flashlight shining in my eyes. It's amazing. And, and I kind of remember my dad telling me, it's interesting because I, I know you've done shows about police. I remember my dad saying to me, look, there's some bad policemen and there's some good policemen. And you don't know what policemen you're going to get. So you have to just sort of play the game and know that the likelihood of you getting a bad policeman is higher than you getting a good one. So just play the game and don't alarm them because they're on very high alert that they're frightened and frightened animals will bite. So that's how you have to think about a cop, a frightened animal. I would say that's a good advice to give. A child, I guess. I mean, and but well, twelve-year-olds get shot and killed yeah, these days. So. I know, I know. And but my mother was like, "Ah, eh, they're probably most of them are." Pro-. My mother was a little more conservative, so she was like, "They're probably not going to hurt you because we're white." Like you know, she was also aware of also the, aware. The yeah, divide. absolutely. She grew up in the South and got whipped because she drank out of a colored fountain. Whipped by a white person. Yes. Yeah. And she said, I, you know, she said, what, why are you, her, she, she befriended, her best friend was black. This is in Louisiana in the forties. And, uh, they were like, you can't be friends with this girl. And she was like, I can be friends with whoever I want. And so (laughs) they were like, she's like, why can't I be friends with her? And so she kept going to get her drink and she kept saying, I can't drink out of that fountain. And my mom was like, why not? I don't understand. She's like, well, we have to go drink out of the hose in the back. And my mom's like, <laughs> she's like 12. And she's like, this is bullshit. So she goes around the back and like sees this drink fountain. And she's like, I want to try this water. So she drinks out of the hose and she starts arguing with the teacher and they both got whipped. And my mom just told, I also heard this story when I'm like 10. So I'm like, okay, we live in a fucked up, con- this is fucked up. And my mom's like, yeah. And you know what's even more bad? Like, this shit's still going on under the undercover. And I'm like, no way. No way. And she's like, yep, it still is. It's the 70s. We're, we're like 30, 40 years out before, you know, this shit's going <laughs> to stop. 60, 70, 80. Right. She was being optimistic. Yeah, she was. <laughs> but, but my parents, they just, they did not sugarcoat anything ever. But knowing that, I'm surprised they let you become an actor, <laughs> considering. Well, well, that's its own story. So they did let me become an actor, but it was only because I wanted to do it. And I, at a young age, was cast in a commercial of my dad's. My dad cast me. And Was that the then, encyclopedia? No, this is many years oh, before okay. that. I'm six years old. Oh. I'm just reading a voiceover script. Mm. And I was like, I got a check in the mail for like $300. And I was pretty spoiled, but like, that's a lot of money. Now even. Now I'm like, I made more money then than I do now. So in the mail, I get this check and I'm like, wait a minute. I got paid for that? 
And they're like, yeah, you get paid if you, you talk and you get paid to talk. And I was like, oh my God, is this something I can do for a living? Like I'm little, you know? And, and they're like, yeah, I mean, there's other things you could do for a living. You could be a doctor, you could be a, a lawyer, you could be a, a fireman, you could be a nurse, you could be a hairdresser. There's so many different things you could be. Like anybody you see working, you could do that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do any of that. I want to talk for money. And so <laughs> I just joined the Screen Actors Guild at seven and I got, but my mom gave me this talk, which was this. She said, listen, there's a lot of creeps out there and they prey on kids. That's why every time you're going to go to an audition or anytime you're on a set, mommy's coming with you. And if I see any bullshit, I am going to ream some motherfucker. She's going to send the boogeyman because she's married to him. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the real boogeyman is my mom. Yeah, well, amen. I I remember like going to one audition and just my mom being there and just saying to my mom, like, was that guy a little, I got a funny feeling, mom. And she's like, so did I. Like, we're not going back there. And I remember her walking into this office and telling this guy that he was, that he was a pervert. Like she said, I saw the way you were talking to those kids, motherfucker. And you're a goddamn pervert. And I just, this was my mother, like, and she, and he was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know exactly what I'm talking about, you sicko. And like, she probably shut the whole place down, I'm sure. My mother had Frank Sinatra on speed dial. So occasionally she would make a call, I'm sure, to her people. Did you have a lot of experience around Frank Sinatra? Um, I remember briefly meeting him when I was like pretty, very young. And I remember my dad would always call him Uncle Frank. And I remember my mom corresponding with him via letters. They stayed friends for a very long time. But I don't remember him being around at that point, no. Your mom and dad, uh, what, 10, 20 years of difference in age? Or are they pretty close in age? No, pretty close. Um, well, actually, hold on. Four years apart. Oh, that's nothing. Okay. Yeah, nothing is right. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I think of my mom as so much younger because she died a lot earlier than my dad did because she smoked herself to death. And so my dad lived a lot longer. But gosh, and she just, I don't know, they were both old souls and children at the same time. Hmm. You know, but that's my mom beautiful. was, yeah. My parents definitely taught me things that now seem obvious, but back then was like, uh, be careful. And drugs. She taught me about drugs and sex, everything, very early on. And so I'm, I feel lucky. Do you think that learning about sex early on, uh, like my parents taught me everything about sex early on. I got the books wow, and the yeah. lectures yeah, and yeah, yeah, all yeah. that stuff. And I lost my virginity when I was 18. I do think there's something to, the more you know, the less enticing or exciting it is. <laughs> well, I don't want to gender anyone or, or, or say it's different because obviously it's, it has nothing to do with that. But I remember from a very young age being interested in sex and wanting to try it. I remember calling a hooker when I was 12. Oh, my God. What? Um, <laughs> 
I I was boy crazy. I just wasn't interested in having the sex. I wanted the kissing part and the cuddly parts. Sure. No, I just wanted to fuck. Yeah. So okay. like, like <laughs> you were DTF, yo, at twelve. <laughs> I was DTF. So like, I remember getting like those back like those like uh, back like, pages. Yeah, but they used to be called something else, and it's the LAX Press. Oh, my goodness. And I called a number, and I was like, hello, I'd like to get a lady tonight. And, like, they called my mom back because, like, they wanted a credit card. And my mom was like, did you call this number? Did you do this? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, play stupid, you know? And she's like, don't bullshit me. You called a hooker. And I was like... What's a like? Does that mean is that a? I call. I tried to call his girlfriend. Like, is she going to come over? And so then, of course, my mom gave me the sex talk, and it was, it was rough. But like, but like from that day forward, I thought I want. I want to try this. I want that. That sounds good. Yeah, (laughs) and my and my parents. It was neat because my parents were very much like, "This is a beautiful thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of." It's just as normal as eating or sleeping or anything else. It's just a human function. And, you know... Some people do all of it at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. And so I didn't think much of it, really. There was a question I wanted to ask you after you talked about Mrs. Clark's house. Do you have anything still from Mrs. Clark's house? No. You know, I have so little left of their physical of my physical childhood and legacy that it's sad i really don't i wish i did i i thought everything was just gonna last forever and i didn't the one thing that i wasn't prepared for they prepared me for everything else like hey you know when you go out with your black friend and you get pulled over shit's you know you gotta be an ally like shit that is now so far ahead of its time and the sex thing and the drugs thing and the, everything I was prepared, 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 social issues, a thousand percent prepared, like unbelievable. But when it comes to death and the fact that like, that was the one thing that like my friend says, God, Don, I mean, you're kind of like the, like you're like the bourgeois Buddha in a way. Cause it's like you were raised in this mansion and taught about everything but you weren't really taught about death or the fact that like things are going to go that came later but i and then my dad disappeared that's a whole other story that i i won't get into too deeply but you know my dad remarried after my mom died and cracked up and left us and basically like they're go they they ghosted us like like my mom died and my dad ghosted us all and it was like this man who absolutely worshipped you just vanished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I called Gavin, my sort of male confidant and nanny, and worldwide threat assessment security expert because my dad was stalked by this woman, and basically she she targeted him. And I think there was some elder abuse going on, possibly. I don't. I don't know. She dug up my mother's grave. Lots of terrible stuff happened. Oh, you told me that story. Yeah, I don't know if you're yeah, talking about that. But... Really terrible stuff happened. But it's sick. But anyway, she she made sure we were never going to see my dad again. And 
when Gavin said was, that's not your dad anymore. Like when he was so attacked, my parents worked together for 40 years and were married for 48 years. And so the only thing I can say is that when my mom died, my dad's kind of started unraveling, unraveling like a sweater. And this woman kind of like swooped in literally and was like Kathy Bates in misery, literally. And was just from day one took him over and I started getting letters from his lawyers. Like, you know, my dad didn't have a lot left, but like his, the rights to his work, his assets, anything. My dad wasn't wealthy at that point. He was pretty down and out. And I said to her, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want anything, money, none of it. You can take all the Grammys and the money and whatever, the house, anything. I just want to see my daddy. That's it. You can be there or not. And she was like, you'll never see your father again as long as I live. And neither will your sister and neither will his grandchild and neither will any of his friends. And the only sort of piece of it was when I would meet up with friends of his, his, like, for instance, his, his best friend was Ray Bradbury. And I remember Ray seeing Ray and, and Ray saying, I'm, I'm not allowed to see your daddy either. She just completely brainwashed him and took him to her house and we never saw him again. Hmm. So my dad died <clears throat> to me like 10 years before, you know, 15 years before he actually died. But, but you, it's crazy. Did you have to grieve him twice, though, I imagine? I mean, he'd, when he oh, died. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the second grieving was a little bit more of a finality. It was actually more of a, I don't want to say a relief, but like, it's over. Like, my father's gone now. So, you know. It's kind of like when you're watching somebody die of cancer. Like when my mother died, it was terrible. But I was like, okay, she's out of pain. And there was closure. And the only closure I had, unfortunately, with my dad was his physical death. I never got to see him again. Her last call to us was, he's dead. I won. So she was a sociopath. Yes. Or is, if she's still yep. alive. Yeah. She's alive. Yep. She is. In fact, it's interesting you say that because... My therapist at the time said, listen to me. This is beyond narcissism. This is, this is truly a sociopath, a dangerous person, perhaps. And Gavin told me this, too. He said, your dad has been bitten by a black widow, and if you go into that nest, just be aware, be safe, because this is a dangerous person. And there's any possibility here. She could kill you. She, who knows? I don't know. All I know is I never saw him, and she's crazy. Yeah. It's, there are crazy people out there. Do you visit his grave? <laughs> I don't know where he's buried. She won't tell us. And, and it's sort of online, like you can find it, but I think she's never buried him. I think she's got his ashes somewhere. I don't know. I visit my dad. <laughs> I... I think you'll be hip to this because you're cool, but like, <laughs> like you're cool in a very spiritual way. But like, I, I kind of realized lately that I, I have like a, a little bit of clear audience. And so not often, but often enough. And especially lately as I've been quarantined, it's interesting. I can hear my father mm -hmm. and it's more than just like 
what would my father do? Or I can hear my father's voice in my head that it's like a real, like, do this, call this person. And then I'll have a series of synchronicities where it's like, it's funny you called me because I was just thinking about your dad or like the craziest crap. And so I feel like my parents are, they've taken on Jedi Council like holograph form now. They've <laughs> Carrie would approve all, of that. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I, I honestly believe that they're all out there somewhere. We don't, I don't know what comes next, but I know that this is not it, man. God, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not either. Because what the hell did we all do? <laughs> right. Exactly. We're in hell. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I, I have to believe. Although there are dogs here, so that, you know, that's mm-hmm. a saving grace. Yep. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's, you are probably... Um, I when I told some of my friends that I was talking to you today, and they would say, "Who's that?" and I'd say, "Well, you probably know him from." And I said, "Encyclopedia Britannica commercial." Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that come about? That was one of your dads as well, or? Yep. So that was a super famous. It got spoofed on oh, SNL and wow. stuff, right? It was. That was like my fourteen minutes of fame, man. That was that was it. That was my Warhol fame, and a lot like Star Wars, my dad had no idea. My dad had done hundreds of commercials. He had no idea it was going to be a big hit like that. But my mother was my father's producer and she was a genius and in a much different way than my father. Anyway, the Encyclopedia Britannica approached my dad and said, listen, we are in trouble. Like, we we, we need you. And we, we need your brilliant advertising eye to go and just make a commercial for us and so my father was like and what year is this because the computers were starting to take over i'm imagining people stopped looking at encyclopedias which were in every home in america mostly you know right no google and no internet so my father just saw me making playing computer games and using it as a word processor and you know, writing my homework on it, but he always used to say, like, why can't the computer, my dad was really smart, he was like, why can't the computer hook up to the library? Like, why can't you just, I don't get it. And so, like, what good is this stupid thing? Like, I I love that you're playing video games and challenging your mind. I love that you can write a book report on your word processor. I love that you can, you know, but there was no internet yet. So, at that point, my father took on the campaign I did the commercial and he just said, listen, my only, I had to audition though. This is hilarious. Cause he, they were, they said, you know, we're trying to find this kid in the commercial. That's basically going to be like really annoying. a know it all kind of strangely endearing despite his like smart ass exterior kind of cute, but like, quirky and geeky like jason bateman on silver spoons <laughs> exactly right my nemesis so so um as as i'm saying as she's saying this i'm i'm not clued in i'm like all right well good luck with the casting good luck with that you know all right i'm gonna go back to play with my robot now and they were like wait a minute like could donovan do it and so you know my dad was like son could you could you play a know-it-all like computer and then it immediately became clear duh like donovan's the guy like he's exactly what you just described and so 
we did this spot. And the hair, you had the hair, too. Oh, oh Jesus. The hair it was so nice. everything. And the whole thing was crazy. And so my, my mom said, okay, they only have a limited budget for airtime, right? So we're going to buy MTV. It was the first season of The Real World, and which was like the first reality TV show for young people. And we're going to buy CNN because we, we were, my, my dad got intel that we were about to start uh, the, the, the first Iraq war. So my mother said, where will we have a captive audience? MTV, because of this reality show, that's what's coming. My parents were super ahead of the curve, obviously. And my dad said, war is coming. So we got to buy spots when people are watching the war on TV. And so they bought all the airtime on CNN and MTV. And like, it was literally like, we've gone to war in the Middle East back after this message. And then it'd be like, remember me? And then like, all the kids are watching MTV. So they've got the parents watching a war and the kids are watching MTV. And like, sales went up 800% in like two weeks. And I got taken out to dinner by the head of, you know, it's like we were saying. It was the most successful ad campaign my dad had ever done probably at that point. And for them, it, it revitalized their brand. And we actually did like probably, I'm going to say, about a dozen different spots. And, and my dad said, I don't want anything in the background. It has to be a white background. He's going to be in limbo and a white psych. It's going to be super weird. You don't know where he is. Nothing. That sweater. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't really even, it's like Carrie, right? I didn't even realize it was a big deal until I would go out, like after the commercial had really hit. And then especially after MTV did it, I was like, oh, and I would go out in public and people were like, oh my God, you're that dork. You're that nerd. You're that geek, you know, encyclopedia nerd. And when it was it, on the SNL sketch. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you yeah. feel about that? Well, they called me and asked me if I wanted to go on. And I, I, I always had like agoraphobia and fear of traveling. And like, I wasn't really like, I was like, are you going to pay me? And they were like, mm, well, you're not going to pay you. It's just exposure. And I was like, fuck you. I don't give a shit about your exposure. And so I, I was like, mom, should I go on, on Saturday Night Live? And she's like, I don't know. Lauren Michaels is kind of a dick. And so, <laughs> and my dad was like, yeah, you should go on that show. You know, I'll go with you to New York. And I was like, you know, I don't want to go on, uh, on Saturday Night Live. I mean, look what it did to Carrie and, and Danny and look what it did to all these comedians. It killed them with drugs. I hate Saturday Night Live. And so my, my dad and mom were like, good for you. We hate it too. Fuck it. We're not going on that. And so... <laughs> I never went on, which is so insane. And I ended up seeing Mike Myers, who was friends with, obviously friends with, I forget the guy's name now. Jesus Christ. Anyway, the guy that, David Spade. So David Spade was the guy that parodied me. And I was supposed to go on and fight David Spade. Like we were supposed to have a punching match. I didn't like that either, the violence. Anyway. So, but Mike Myers was like, oh my God, you're the encyclopedia guy. Like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to tell David about this. And I was like, please do and like no hard feelings and they asked me to be on the show he's like i know i heard and you turned him down and i was like yeah i don't really want to be on saturday Night live and mike myers was like 
solid. Like that, that's a solid, like that's a power move, man. Like to tell him no. And so, you know, now I wish of course I'd gone on and done it, but how old were you at that point? 17. Did you have any experiences with the, you know, Epstein's of the world or the, any of that kind of thing? Or were you pretty well protected from that? No, but I know that Epstein is a piece of garbage. I mean, I've always known that long before that news broke. Mm-hmm. I, I, my my parents would just say like, don't, don't. At one point I said to my parents and I took a divergence into acupuncture school and psychology school and decided to go the route of becoming like a healer. And I told my parents, I said, look, you know, I'm kind of done with this show business shit. Like it's a good way to make money, but I don't really see it as a viable source of income in the future. I w- this is where I was like Alex P. Keaton. I was like, I just, how do, how do you keep doing it? Where's the longevity in it? Like, and my mother was like, well, you're a man, so you got a lot <laughs> more longevity than a woman would, believe me. But, She's not wrong. Yeah, yeah like, uh, yeah, what are you going to do instead? And I was like, I think I want to be a doctor or a therapist or go into the healing arts. And my mom's like, thank God, you saved yourself a load of trouble. And so they they were all for it. Who do you think is the most iconic person that you interacted with throughout your childhood? Jim Henson. Yeah. Yeah, Jim Henson. I met his I met, son a couple, I guess now, yeah. a couple months ago, and what a delightful, lovely man. Yeah, I've met his son, uh, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, nice guy, nice guy. Yeah. Looks Jim, just like him. Yeah, I know. You know, I think Jim, my dad, one of the first skits that Sam and Friends did, which was uh, Jim's first, like, puppet improv group, um, was uh, a skit of my dad's. And he was mad at first because they didn't pay him and he didn't know who they were. And they, he's like, ah, they can't, nobody's going to lip sync my stuff. But then he saw it and they were like, we're, we're thinking of calling it the Muppets. And, like, my dad just loved it so much. And he wrote to Jim and they, they ended up hanging out and my dad was giving Jim all sorts of like advice and, and, and he's like, I think we got this thing. It's, it's like a turtle. And my dad was like, that's not a turtle. That's a frog. And he's like, really? You think so? And my dad's like, definitely that I've always known that thing is a frog. It's not what it doesn't look like a turtle. And so he starts talking to Jim about like ideas and you know, they're, they're they, they became best friends and were best friends until Jim died. But at one point, my, we were at the Science Fiction Awards or the Emmys. Anyway, and my dad says, I want you to meet Kermit's daddy. Aww. Kermit's daddy. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So I went in and I said, you know, hey, hey, how are you? You know, um, I'm, I'm Jim Henson. And I was like, wow, you sound like Ernie. And... Um, <laughs> And he was, I was like, you sound like the frog. And so I sat on Jim's lap and he took out Kermit and talked Kermit to me. <sighs> and I mean, that to me. That makes me want to cry right now. I know. And, and like, he smelled like powdered donuts and he had like donut in his beard. And my dad told me he was a real true genius, son. This is a real true good man. And so that was like my Fred Rogers moment. Like I got to meet my hero, Jim Hansen. So 
to me, that's more important than anybody else I've ever met. And I've met everybody pretty much. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. He was so sweet and so just what you'd think he would be. Gentle. That, yeah. Smart. That, that, yeah. Yes. That to me is really when you meet somebody who's your hero and they don't exactly act like your hero, then you're sad. But if you meet your hero and they're everything you hope for and more, that's a good moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I talked to Prince on the phone once. That was cool. <laughs> I love Prince. Yeah. Yeah. Those are like my, like to me growing up, like the, those are the people that I was very enamored of and thought something of. That was like my childhood moment was Jim. Then like the teenage moment was Prince. And, you know, I've, I've met Madonna and all those people, but I don't really have anything bad or good to say. It's just something. I love all the stories about Prince that came out after he died because we all yeah. knew he was a genius. We knew what a kind soul. Um, but to hear all the anonymous stuff that he did, you know, after the fact, once all that was revealed after he passed away, that, you know, when, when celebrity passes away, I'm like, oh, well, you know, that happens or whatever. But there are certain people, Jim Henson cried, Prince, I cried. Glenn Fry, I cried. John Prine, I sobbed. I was making dinner. And I was just sobbing. I think that was a combination of yeah. the between the virus and the the fear and the sadness. And John Prine as a songwriter, you know, to me that just hits so hard. Um, Robin Williams, oh my gosh, I sobbed when he died. David Bowie, Bowie, I didn't. You know, Bowie, I, I knew he was sick for so long. I think I made peace with the fact that I yeah. knew he was going to die, so it didn't hit me as hard as some of the other people. It's a shock. Yeah, yeah, of course. The I shocking knew, I knew, deaths are the yeah, worst. Yeah, I we're really good friends with Glenn and his family. Yeah, really good. So um, I knew Glenn was quite sick, but it was kind of still. It was it's a shock never, for me. Yeah, I would have never tough. When I came across country to move here, I uh, stopped in Winslow and spent the night. And I stood on the corner and I cried. It was just, it's weird how certain things in your, in your, the lexicon of who you are, like the words and the songs that touch you and the American songbook and all that stuff. It just, some things just hit you just right, you know? Oh, God. And I think our general, I mean... I don't know. I mean, my sister generation saw a lot of death, but a lot of our icons in my generation, just one after the next, it seemed for a while there, it was like just so ghastly. Everybody's checking out, you know? When Carrie Fisher died, I cried. And then no, when, was... when Debbie Reynolds cried because I knew, or when, I'm sorry, when Debbie, when Debbie Reynolds died right after Carrie Fisher, that broke my heart. I mean, I was at the memorial. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, 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 I knew, it didn't surprise me, okay? Only because knowing Debbie and knowing Carrie, it was very much like the relationship that my parents had. And I watched someone die and then another person die. Now, my dad didn't physically die, but when somebody's like Alpha and Omega is gone, and the other person's lived a life and is old, they just go. And it's almost like lovers or couples, you know, you hear one goes and then the other one's dead a month later or whatever. It's like, you know, Debbie, Debbie just left the body. She just left. She wasn't, she literally made a choice to just walk out. And it's terrible. I mean, it's devastating. But I think she knew that 
she wanted to follow Carrie. Mm. So sad. It's terrible. Woof. Well, Donovan, tell people how they can find you and, and read your stuff and, and learn more about you and that good news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what this is going to be about, but it's it, we've talked, we've had a wide sub. I feel like I've, I guess this is how all podcasts people feel, but I feel like I've monopolized the conversation. Like if we were just chatting, I'd be like, I totally monopolized this conversation, man. It's exactly how I wanted it. Okay. I feel, um, I mean, so, honestly, you and I could talk for about five hours and that would still not be enough, I feel like, so. Well, yeah, and it's so funny because you, like many other friends of mine, are uh, like on my list of people that I'm like, you know what, this is a really cool person <laughs> that I need to spend more time with, IRL, and like. <laughs> Thank you. Now this fucking thing hits, it's like, you know. Yeah. I, We've had some great combos though, driving around in your car, and you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I definitely have. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I I miss you, but I miss everyone, and this is this is tough. It's like I miss my family. I'm quarantining with my partner Eve and my girlfriend Miranda. She's she's like quarantining away from me, so like everybody has some level of like. Oh, it's just terrible. But anyway, we'll get through this. I hope, but. Now that we're back to normal um, uh, conversation, what am I saying? I haven't had enough caffeine. How, you know, how this... people can find you and, and oh, read, read your blog and like all that stuff. Yeah, so donovanfreeberg.com is my website, just D-O-N-A-V-A-N freeberg.com. And then like people can find me on Instagram at donovanf or um, they can find my professional Instagram at donovanfreeberg. Honestly, my photography just kind of has been i'm a photographer huh. and uh i'm laughing because i never talked about that but that's i know i just realized like shit i didn't even ask you about your photography which you no, don't don't you're worry a phenomenal about photograph- photographer thank you so much you know uh, to me i'm a storyteller that's my that's what i do i'm a storyteller so um i tell stories in various capacities either with words pictures or anecdotes yeah your stories tonight this afternoon were lovely photographs of your life yeah that's all my photographs are is just visual stories but anyway so donovan freeberg is my professional instagram donovan f you can google me and find a lot of weird stuff i mean that's fun what's your blog page which is hilarious that's baby boy freeberg i think if you google baby boy freeberg you'll find stuff yeah i'll put a link page together with all this too okay that's cool i'm pretty googleable yeah you're googleable i even have a gif if you if you write encyclopedia kid or encyclopedia guy there's a gif of me fantastic or a gif we won't we won't go into that i call them gifs i think i think it's it's gif isn't it like you're the encyclopedia kid Yeah, I mean, let's talk about GIFs versus GIFs. So anyway, it's graphic interchange format. So, I mean, if it's graphic, like graphic, then it's not going to be giraffic, right? So it's GIF. I agree. That was a great impression of yourself. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I was almost brave enough to do an impression of Lauren Michaels when you were talking about him, but I didn't quite, I didn't have the gumption. That's hilarious. I know, I'm only, I'm like, yeah. I mean, heck. Anyway. Donovan, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad we finally got it done. It took took a little bit, but we're here. Yay. Be well and stay well. Please be well. You're well and you're quarantined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All's well. Stay safe. 
staying okay. safe. My roommate is wonderful. She's like my sister, Great. and I've known her forever and ever. And we are yeah. hankered down, hungered down, whatever. There you go. We're all just waiting to reboot. Or... That's a whole other podcast. It is. Yeah. It is. I love you. Take care. I love you, too. It's good to see you, and thank you so much. Thank you. You're great. I love your podcast. Everyone should listen. Oh, thanks, love. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you. Bye.